Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me this morning? Father, we, we make that our cry. We need you to hold us fast, God. There's just so much seeming to be going on around us, potentially pulling us off track, and Lord, we need you. We need our daily mercy, our daily grace. We need your protecting love. We need the Holy Spirit to help us steer clear of sin and properly deal with the sin we don't steer clear of. Lord, would you be at work? May we be aware of the ways that you are holding us fast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It seems that every major sporting event, whether it's the Masters or the start of a season like baseball or the Olympics, whatever it is, it seems like every major sporting event has with it in the broadcast at least crazy stories of athletes and coaches who have overcome who knows what to be where they are now. They've overcome injury, they've overcome illness, they've overcome being raised by wolves. I don't know. They've just overcome stuff that the rest of us haven't done so at least in the same fashion in order to accomplish what they have and be where they are. And while you get snippets of these stories, you hear a breakdown of events and the emotion that, that got them through or that was an obstacle You're left at the end of that story knowing that you've seen a two-minute version of what took 18 years, and you're left wondering, well, well, I want to know more. I want to know what, what fills in those cracks that went from great loss and obstacle to greatness. And then there's stories that go the opposite direction, stories where someone has gone from wealthy to bankrupt, an influencer to an outcast, a legitimate authority to illegitimate. And where we are throwing books away, we are trying to deny that we were ever influenced by the person or ever looked up to them fully. And in these scenarios, we are left with similar questions. How how did they go from where they were to where they are? But in those scenarios, we tend to have more questions and fewer answers. Where did they go wrong? What led to this collapse? Am I somehow prone to the same mistakes? The book of Judges tells such a story. It tells a story that starts with what seems like the precipice of greatness and blessing and ends in a, in a deeply fractured nation clawing in the dark for anything that's right. It's a story of decline that is sometimes gradual and sometimes terrifying, although by the time the really scary stuff happens, you realize the people are so blind And so numb that it doesn't freak them out as much as it should. The book of Joshua, which precedes Judges, is this 
for the most part, this great success where we see God's people going to the land that God has given them. And, and while there's struggle, while there's issues here and there where they don't quite believe God, they don't know what to do, they make some missteps, for the most part, they're just following God and God is giving them victory. And it's these miraculous stories of God's people coming into the land and God's promises being fulfilled. But then Judges opens with Joshua's death. And this loss of Joshua seems to initiate a process of spiraling. Many commentators and, and biblical guys refer to Judges as this kind of corkscrew, this, this downward spiral where it just keeps going down and, it, and it's just going around and sometimes there's a quick drop and other times it's a slower gradual decline, but it just keeps cycling down and down and down. And by the time we get to the end of the book, it's stuff that we don't even want to read out loud. They come in as a conquering nation. And at the end of the book, by the time we get there later this year, they'll be fragmented, defeated, and full of inward strife. How does this happen? Spiritual decline rarely starts as some sort of outright rebellion or even feels like it in the midst of it. If we shine a bright, exposing light, then we, it, it just shows a whole lot of incompleteness. An incomplete view of God, an incomplete view of what it means to walk with the Lord, an incomplete understanding of His Word, an incomplete obedience. In Judges 1, and we'll go just a little bit into chapter 2 today, is that story of incomplete obedience. It sets the people in the direction of the downward spiral. And what we're going to see as we move through this is that incomplete obedience, there's a typo here, incomplete obedience does not honor the Lord. That is completely my fault. Kari is off the hook 100%. And dangerously leads us away from his goodness. Incomplete obedience does not honor the Lord. Dangerously leads us away from his goodness. And the slow downward turn of incomplete obedience starts with great success. The book of Judges opens with this troubling situation. Joshua has been leading the people after Moses and he's died. The one who led them into the promised land is dead. And what's worse is there's, is they're not where many of them thought they'd be by the time Joshua had died. The land is not clear to the inhabitants. They don't even have a capital city yet. We're going to see how they, that they're going to get Jerusalem conquered, but they, they're not there yet. It feels like they've just begun this work, and now Joshua's dead. And even though he was old, it would have felt like a far too soon loss for this leader. 
Here's how it opens. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given them into his hand. It's interesting here that Joshua's dead. But they're not without a leader, are they? They're not without a leader at all. In fact, it's the same exact set of hands still guiding them as it's always been. The Lord was guiding their forefathers before Moses ever came about. The Lord was guiding them when Moses was there. After Moses died, the Lord was still guiding them through Joshua. And here, Joshua is dead. The people go out to meet with God. God answers them. We shouldn't freak out when we lose a leader one way or another. When a leader we've counted on leaves for good reasons or bad, or dies, or quits doing ministry. We should be thankful for how God used that person, but realize that it was the Lord all along. And so the Lord speaks, and then the people do the most remarkable thing. They listen with unity. They, they listen with unity. And here in the beginning of Judges, we see the tribes working together, calling each other brother. As though, as though the sons of Jacob himself were still there and, and actually getting along with one another. Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight the Canaanites. And I likewise, likewise will go with you into the territory allotted with you. And so Simeon went with him. This is a great picture of unity. By the end of the book of Judges, we see a very different picture of this nation. One so fractioned that, that they nearly drive one tribe into extinction. But the picture here at the beginning is a unity between the tribes, truly one nation. A commentator named Dale Ralph Davis, who I anticipate you'll get sick of me referring to over the course of the next few months. He says this, talking about how it's appropriate to apply this to the body of Christ. He said, the Lord's people thrive on mutual assistance. God has given us one another as channels of his help and strength. The unity and fellowship of God's people is not a wimpy idea weaker Christians dote on. It is an essential condition for experiencing the strength of our Lord. It's not that Judah was going and saying, oh man, I don't know if I can do this on my own. I should have Simeon come. It's that they said, look, God has told us to go and we're going to go. But we know there's more strength with more of God's people. And so we are going to partner with our brother Simeon and accomplish God's work together. So what follows is a series of victories. They capture a king. They take a lot of real estate, including Jerusalem. Judges is a book that includes a lot of detail, some of it quite colorful. And they're there to help us. And the conquest of the land was an undoubtedly a brutal task. 
A lot of people died. A lot of God's people killed a lot of people. They were there to kill all the inhabitants of the land and drive them off. To leave nobody left. The only way to stay was to be buried. That was the option of peace that they were to extend to their enemies. So here we have this brutal act. We have this king. Down in verse 6 and 7. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps from under my table as I have done so God has repaid me. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. It shows us a couple of things. One, it shows us that within the brutality of the task of clearing the land, the people were being instruments of God's judgment on the Canaanites. That God was using Israel to judge the wickedness of the land and to bring condemnation on it. They were as unpleasant and as gory as it was They were instruments of God's wrath on the land, serving the Lord in his purposes. But secondly, we see something else. God didn't tell him to cut off his thumbs and toes, did he? They started already acting just a little bit like Canaanites. Already, just a little bit, the culture was coming in. As we do God's work, as we seek to live holy lives, desire to influence others to live holy lives, as we proclaim this message that is wildly unpopular, that if you do not confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, you will go to hell, while also proclaiming this same message that's absolutely the best news ever, which is your sins can be forgiven and you can have eternal life with the creator of the universe. As we seek to do this, we need to be very, very careful to not do any of it with the world's methods. To not belittle those who disagree with us. To not be overcome with our own pride because we are on the right side after all. To not judge in a human way. To not be filled with anger or vindictiveness. To not participate in a cancel culture. But to share the truth in love. So this great start that they have, there's all these victories. God is handing over the nations to them, handing the real estate to them. And then goes to Caleb, offering his daughter as a bride for the victor of a region. Othniel rises up to the task. 
And she, this young woman, who we would maybe say, like, how is she a prize? She actually comes up and she shows office and she takes initiative. And she says, hey, we're going to this region. Make sure you ask my dad for a, for a, a piece of land that has some water in it. And then she herself does that. What a remarkable start. But good starts have a way of relaxing us where we are. We get off to a good start, be like, you know what, the hardest part is getting the ball rolling. Now that the ball's rolling, I can relax a bit. And how often do we do this in our own lives? We feel an awareness for a spiritual change, a greater intentionality within our spiritual walk, we, we say, okay, this is the year. I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. I usually make it to like May-ish on my best years, but I'm going to do the whole thing this year. And we start going, and we get to February, and we're like, oh man, I'm cruising. It's never been easier. And then we relax. Or we have a sin that we're fighting. And we decide this is going to be the last time I fill in the blank. Go online and look at pornography. The last time I, lose, I go gambling, the last time I give myself to whatever substance you're prone to give yourself to. This is the last time I'm going to lose my temper with my family. This is the last time I'm going to belittle that person I love so much. I'm going to change. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be sober. I'm going to be self-controlled. And we go a solid 45 minutes? No. Sometimes. Other times we go like a solid week or two. And we say, oh, I'm good. I can relax. And then little by little it starts creeping back in. Little by little we start giving ourselves over to those things we've now tried to avoid. We have a way of making compromises and shrouding them in godly language. All the while, we take steps of palatable compromise. And that's what the people start doing in verse 19. They start taking steps of palatable compromise. Look at verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. They're still going. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Did not the Lord tell them, I am with you, I will give them into your hands. Did not the Lord tell them in Deuteronomy 21, though they have chariots, you will overtake them. Did not Joshua tell them in his farewell addresses, they said, look, they have chariots, they have chariots of iron. And Joshua goes, even though they have chariots of iron, God is with you and you will conquer them. They had been told, yeah, they have chariots of iron. You have the Lord God of heaven. But they made the compromise. Well, it's going to really hurt to go against those chariots of iron. I don't know if you've heard, but they're fast and they're really hard. 
And so they make the compromise and they back out. And then we have this refrain over the next several verses. They did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Judah doesn't. Joseph doesn't. Manasseh doesn't. Ephraim doesn't. Zebulun doesn't. Asher doesn't. Naphtali doesn't. The Amorites are, are left. They don't drive them out. They don't trust God over their flesh. They think, oh, we can surely leave a few. Oh, these, these people won't influence us. We're making great strides in our walk with God. We can allow this to keep happening. We can allow them to keep their bales. We can allow them to keep their customs. Surely we are of better stock and we won't be influenced. We're not told to go out and clear the city, but we are told to go out and make disciples. We are told to go out and show justice, to care for the marginalized, the least of these. We are told to do things that are awfully inconvenient for us as believers, that don't allow us all the creature comforts that we see people posting about on Instagram, which is 100% authentic. We're told to serve God and not money, to love justice and mercy, to walk humbly. And a lot of times, we get most of the way there and we feel pretty good. Or we get part of the way there and we're like, yeah, I did it. Check. And then we go off. We also see that they let them live among them. The Amorites persisted in dwelling. This is towards the end of chapter 1. And they list the names of the places that Joseph rest, the hand of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. Labor in the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. They did not clear the land. They did not obey the Lord. They made exceptions. Surely we'll just rule over them instead of killing them. Won't that be better? This is a difficult task. We need to realize and we need to get our head around this. God will absolutely ask you to do more than you can do. God will absolutely give you more than you can handle. God absolutely wants you to trust him above all others and fully rely on him and experience his goodness, his power, his provision, instead of trying to do it on your own. When we do it on our own, we say, oh, those chariots are made of iron. Even though we were told to expect this and that we could overcome it, we just weren't prepared for that. Oh, I don't want to drive them all out. 
I have my house, I'm good. Oh, I can just rule over them and then they won't influence me. At the very heart of these compromises is a lack of trust in God. They're not, as Proverbs tells us to do much later in the chronological time of the Bible, they are not trusting the Lord with all their heart, and lean, but they are leaning on their own understanding and they are making their ways crooked. They are not trusting in God's power and goodness. Is the heart convinced <clears throat> that they have a better perception of what's right and wrong in the moment than God himself? They are living a very now-centric life. They are not looking back at the fact that God promised this land to Abraham. They are not looking back at the fact that God delivered their ancestors just a generation or two before them from Egypt after 400 years of slavery through this miraculous deliverance that included, among other things, the complete parting of the Red Sea so that they could leave Egypt. They, they are not looking back at the fact that God parted the Jordan River so they could enter the promised land. They are not looking back even just a little bit ago when Jericho fell over. God made a city collapse. Maybe he can do something to that chariot. They're not looking back to when the sun stood still so they could finish their battle in one day. And they are not looking forward to the blessings that God has them to live in a land flowing with milk and honey, so much so that on the seventh year, they take the year off from agriculture because they have enough and they give the land rest and everyone gets a Sabbath. And all the debts get reset. And they're looking out for one another. They're looking out for the sojourner among them. And they're shining the light of God's glory to the nations. They're not looking ahead to that. They're not looking back at his faithfulness. They're looking at right now and saying, I don't want to do it. And they are missing God's goodness. And when I'm really honest with myself, and I hope you're really honest with yourself, the greatest unifying factor in the palatable compromises I've made in my life have been that I have not believed God's goodness. Is God's plan, is God's call is God's command of holiness, is that really a truly good thing? And there have been so many times in my life where I have not found it to be a good thing in the moment, in the now-centric way that we tend to live, but I can look back and say, absolutely it was. Absolutely it was. We have a powerful God with an unbelievable promise. Let's be very careful to not live a now-centric life. And let's be really careful
not only to be looking for his goodness, but to look for a godly level of satisfaction. See, I think the people of Asher and Ephraim and Zebulun and Manasseh and Joseph and Naphtali and Judah, I think, I think part of it, they're like, you know what, I got my house, I got my garden, got my neighbors, got a place for my livestock. I have enough, I don't need to finish the work of God. I have enough for me, someone else can go finish that if it's that important to them. And their satisfaction was far short of what true obedience looked like. And it resulted in devastating consequences. God comes to them. The angel of the Lord appears in chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt, brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord said these words to the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They called that place Bochum, which means weepers. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. The Lord intervenes. I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I brought you into this land. I am keeping my promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've made my covenant with you. I'm never going to break it, but you broke your side of the deal. They spurned the gift of God with disobedience. And they sought promise without holiness. acted as though they knew better than the God who saved them. And this truth stands tall through all Scripture that we reap what we sow. And they reaped. God's deliverance from the nations will now look different for them. There will be snares. Their work is going to be a lot harder I think of Adam was a gardener before weeds, before thistles, before thorns. And then after the sin, he went out and had to garden among the thistles and the thorns. And here the people were going to be in a land without any thorns in their side. And now they have thorns. And they weep. <clears throat> Our spiritual sin carries physical consequences. Our spiritual sin carries physical consequences. And we have a tendency to look at this weeping 
and it can be confusing, but notice, uh, you, we talked about Judges has a lot of details to it, but sometimes it leaves out some details that we tend to infer and we need to be careful not to. Because we read weeping and sacrifice and what do we assume? We assume repentance. We assume it's going well. But as we follow the course of Judges, we see no fruit of repentance. You see, sometimes sadness looks like repentance. Sometimes grief looks like repentance. But repentance always looks like repentance. Let me say that again. Sometimes sadness looks like repentance, but repentance always looks like repentance. And so as you look at your own sin, as you look at your own walk in times where you've been grieved over what's happened or what's currently happening, I want you to evaluate, am I sad or am I repenting? And repenting certainly contains sadness. There's a grief to repentance. But sadness does not always contain repentance. There's a, a few years ago, Gospel Coalition uh, put out a really helpful article uh, called Eight Signs of True Repentance. And this article is really geared at helping us in relationships where someone is appearing to repent and maybe not repenting in, in, in sin that happens between people. But I've, I've pulled out a few that are particularly helpful for us as we evaluate our own hearts in not only repenting to others, but especially repenting to the Lord. Are you, are you merely just kind of sad, mad you got caught? Or are you sorrowful for your actions? Is your sorrow in the fact that you were caught or the fact that you actually did it? And there's a really big difference. Are you appalled by your own sin? The people here are grieving that the land is not going to be fully theirs for a really long time. That God's help isn't going to be in the way that they anticipated. They're grieving that there's going to be snares to them. They're grieving that life just got harder, but they're not grieving their lack of obedience. Do you feel the depths of pain over sin, realizing what your sin not only does to those around you, but especially what your sin does to the Lord and how it's viewed by the Lord? And I think sometimes we get this backwards. I think sometimes we um, almost depersonize the Lord in our repentance. And here's what I mean. How easy, how much easier is it for you to go to God and say, I'm really sorry I have sinned, than it is to go to your spouse and say, I'm really sorry I've let you down, or to your kids, or to your parents and say, I'm really sorry I've let you down. It's my experience that people are really quick to pray a prayer of repentance to God and they're really afraid to go to another person. And I'm not telling you to be really, really afraid to go to God because His forgiveness is sure. 
But what does it say about our holy reverence to God and our fear of the Lord that it's no big thing to go to God and say, I've sinned. And it's a really big thing to go to another person. May we take our repentance seriously to the Lord. Finally, and this is where I say we, repentance always looks like repentance. And this is why I, I don't believe that what we see in Judges 2, 1 to 5 is repentance. And that's repentance yields fruit and change. It's not always perfect. It's not always night and day. Sometimes it takes a little while to manifest. But repentance leads to change. And I think this is one of the biggest things that the people lacked on the path towards their decline. Is that as they made these now-centric compromises, doubting the goodness of God, They were sad about their sin, but not repentant. They were really content in the little bit of land they had gained. And their contentment led them to fall short of all that God had promised. And all that God had planned. And so as we, as we get ready to close in worship... Are there some things in your heart that you've been sad about but not repentant about? Are there some compromises you've been making not trusting the goodness of God? Would you be willing to say, yeah, this world may have some things to offer, but Christ is absolutely everything I need. Let's pray. Lord God of heaven, we ask that you would help us. We pray, Lord, that you would expose these things in us. God, we need you to, and we thank you that you love us enough to do that. So, Lord, would you do your work in our hearts? Would you point us to the worthiness of Christ and the goodness that you alone have to offer? Lord, help us. Amen.